0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And today I'm joined with the president and founder of Global Conservation Force, Mike Veal. Hey, Mike. Hey, how's it going, Chris? Uh, amazing, amazing. This is one we've been wanting for a while. Anybody that listens to the podcast knows how Angie and I are always talking about Global Conservation Force. And we finally were able to, to catch Mike stateside uh, to schedule this interview. So thank you so much. And uh we're just going to jump right into it. Sounds good. I'm excited to be here. All right. So, you know, before we get into Global Conservation Force, because we, we've talked a little bit about what you guys are doing. But yeah, you know, first about you. Where did you grow up? You know, what's your background?
0: So I grew up here in Southern California and um, I've always been like an outdoors kid involved in a little bit of everything. Um, so really using California to the max, uh, surfing and off-roading, backpacking, diving, a little bit of all of it, which uh, sparked and continued my love for wildlife and the outdoors early on and it's only
1: grown into the professional realm now. Right, right. So, you know, growing up, I'm a California kid. Everybody knows that. (laughs) We have, you know, a very diverse biome, an amazing biome here. So when did your interest in conservation begin?
0: Actually, um, really far back for me. um, I used to tell my parents all the time when I was super young that I wanted to help save wildlife. And, I mean, that comes back to, like, being just a couple years old And I was the kid on the street who was always the one that could catch the lizards and snakes and the neighbors would always call me to come help them get out of their backyard or their house. And I was, you know, rescuing ducklings and squirrels and rabbits all, I mean, from the very, from a very young age. And my parents have all these funny pictures of me all over the place with some critter in my hands. Um, and then when I got into middle school, I had a couple options to take some, wildlife biology type courses that were like new for the school. And that's where I started to scope, like the more real realm of how I could be actively involved, not just, you know, kind of backyard
1: rescue and lizard catching stuff. Right. And that carried you into college or into your career? Yeah. Zookeeping career. Yeah. Yeah. So I continued forward.
0: Um, when I was getting into high school, um, same thing, took a couple more courses. There was actually several at my school and the the teachers used to be professors and they had a lot of tie-ins to a lot of field work and a lot of different stuff. So I jumped in on all these different volunteer projects from some of the college stuff that they had. Um went into college, continued on. Um by the time I was in high school though, uh I was working with a lot of the San Diego nonprofits. So uh I spent time at Lions, Tigers and Bears, I spent time um at Nurtured by nature, spent time at um, Project Wildlife um, here in South San Diego when that was still going, and um, eventually the San Diego Wild Animal Park. And by the time I was a couple years into college, I was getting offered uh, a mammal keeper job at this uh, wild animal park because I'd been working alongside the mammal department in three or four different areas every Monday and Tuesday for eight hours a day and I was working, you know, alongside all the keepers and i are like, Hey, you know, you've always said, this is what you wanted to do is the timing. Right. And I, at the first couple of years I had said, no, you know, I, I do want to work here, but I want to finish school and just have all my ducks in a row. And then, then it became like, you know, the timing's too good. I might as well just split this up with school. And so, yeah, uh, then been there for a very long time um, as a senior I'm now a senior mammal keeper. Um, mm-hmm. I've worked in most of the areas. Uh, the San Jose Safari Park is what it's now called. Um, it's very different from many other facilities not only do we do a lot of different endangered species breeding and movements and relocations with the species we have. Um, you know a regular mammal keeper like myself uh, working in an area might work with 450 animals. Instead of mm-hmm. sixteen or something like a regular zoo string, so um, it's very relatable to field work, and that became, I guess, more noticeable the more I was working over overseas and presenting at conferences. Um, you know, you'd have somebody talking to you about working with species, and you're like, "Oh, I should go talk to that guy. We do the same thing." Or, um, and this was kind of leading up to uh, me launching Global Conservation Force. Mm-hmm. By the time I had taken the job at the park and became a mammal keeper. Um I was already looking for that next step that I was setting up. So I started laying a foundation for stuff. I was also working as a ranger at that same time frame. So I'd work six to two thirty in the morning to the afternoon at the uh Ball Now Park. And then I would work four to midnight or Jeez. you know, eight 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 PM to eight AM on the my weekends as a ranger up in the Temecula
1: Valley area. Oh, wow! 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 Okay, so you are dedicated like that. Nobody we've interviewed <laughs> in over two years works as hard as you do. My goodness! Oh, I know. And you're going to Africa too, so we're going to get into that. Uh I just want to say too, to be able, you must have really impressed them to be able to get a job like that at San Diego Zoo because, or the Wild Animal Park. I know we interviewed Rick Schwartz a few months back, and he said it took him seven tries get a job at san diego and now he's the spokesperson but uh, that's yeah.
0: awesome. that's yeah, awesome I,
1: I, that's awesome. I,
0: I know rick well too um um yeah I, I guess it was more of a thing i had um all the experience uh necessary mm-hmm. and it was a perfect timing situation it is it is very difficult to get in um but i forgot to mention too by that time i had actually already been working as a vet technician as well so like i had kind of some <laughs> like a lot of odd jobs during the college timeframe working on multiple different things. So when I took that interview, um, yeah, I, I locked it in not only from yeah. being familiar, but having a very diverse wildlife care background.
1: Right. Right. And so, you know, before we jump into the global conservation force, cause obviously that's the meat and potatoes, you know, we do have a lot of young, young, young listeners. We have vet students that, you know, reach out to us. Murray state just reached out to us the other day their vet club and they really want to get into conservation. So from your experience is going to zoo route a good way or are there other avenues that you would su- suggest to them? Um, so there are a lot of ways to do it.
0: Um, I would say what, what makes it easier at first is don't limit yourself to a species. Um, get yourself involved in as many projects as you can so you can understand what kind of conservation work you want to do. Uh, There are so many avenues to conservation and the first known one is usually research, right? They, they they're like, Oh, I want to become a field biologist, but, or a field veterinarian, but you might, if you're only looking for that, might pigeonhole yourself along the way. So I'd like to say like start it wide and broad. And I would say volunteering or working at a zoo is good because you will get to know the networks. But, um, be open to jumping on trip experiences, volunteer programs, working as an intern, even if you're a paid professional, um, taking courses that are outside of your daily scope or annual scope for what your exact job title is. And you'll find that there are a lot of doors and a lot of trails that are just left on touch that are missed because people are like, I want to only work with this species. Um, and then, of course, once you're in the field, you realize how small it is in general and that everybody's... Connected to somebody else who needs help or wants help or is looking for that passionate person um, with global conservation Forest because of, I know how that's been uh, for a lot of people is just breaking their way into the industry. We have been laying that foundation for a large variety of projects, and so now we are this year actually releasing several of those types of projects that we will be calling our professional development programs, uh, oh, awesome. so that you can be anywhere in the field. And, you know, get your feet wet in a project and see what it's like to work abroad, uh, see what it's like to work in an avenue, get a real understanding of what it means to be on the ground and understand the needs instead of watching it from social media and forming your opinion off of, you know, a post. So um, because of how I know the industry is, not only do I, can I help explain it and please reach out to us. We can, we're happy to, to answer that when, we you know, we can connect you to multiple team members and multiple backgrounds, but we are also working progressively to make sure that more people have more ways into the industry.
1: Oh, we need, we need to push that for you because I, I, we literally get an email a week, uh, a couple of emails a week. You know, how do I get involved? What projects? And we've, we've shunted them to some of the ones in Africa, but yeah, what you're doing, I know some of the people that are working with you and what they're doing out there in Africa and around the world, it's. Incredibly important. It, it, it's amazing. So we're going to get into it. You know, talking about global conservation force and what exactly it is. So, was it? Did you found it first, or did you go and become a, a ranger? You know, anti-poaching ranger first. I, I guess it's the chicken and the egg question. It is. So, yeah. um, I laid
0: the groundwork more like, like I had set my plans in place by 2011, uh, 12. And I was working already as basically like one of the primary rhino keepers at the Wild Island Park. I was the, um, one of the main caretakers for the last two northern white rhinos. So there, I was their primary. Um, and I was kind of waiting out the timeline to the best time to go. So I knew I wanted to start Global Conservation Forest at that point, but I wanted to check off a couple boxes before I left. So by 2013, I had left at the end of the year, sold all my stuff, moved out of my place and took a leave of absence from the Wild Island Park to become a, uh, well to go into ranger training intake in the Kruger National Park and the greater Kruger National Park zones. And so once I passed um, I was among the top in the, the courses and I became a part of the specialized runner protection unit. So working in that I was working with multiple reserves, multiple law enforcement bodies, multiple boundary zones, and we were not just foot patrolling. So, a little bit of everything all over the place. Well, that was what I was trying to get to because essentially at that point, I could when I could be with any ranger unit and was at a higher level of functioning, like functionality as a operator, field operator if you will. Um, for combat tracking and reconnaissance clandestine operations so then when in that unit people would reach out to me and then when people left their reserves they would reach out to me again so when i came back after the first trip i laid the paperwork foundation down and then formally founded global conservation force so it's kind of like it is the chicken and the egg but they they Mm -hmm. were like synchronized timelines to make sure that i wasn't stepping ahead of myself in the progress
1: Right, so you actually understand, you know, what uh, is out in the field. It, it I, I guess, first of all, because I do want to talk about, you know, becoming an anti-poaching ranger. But I guess now we can tell the listeners that don't know what is Global Conservation Force. What is your mission?
0: So, Global Conservation Force is dedicated to protecting endangered species, wildlife, and habitat um, through anti-poaching education, awareness, and wildlife trafficking investigations. Um, so we are. In my own description, we use a five-tier approach to conservation. So, again, coming back to the known conservation, people um, think biologist equals conservation equals reserve or a species. I donate to rhino conservation and the rhinos safe. well, we've broken that apart into crisis zones and what types of poaching are happening and what type of uh, uh, things need to be addressed. So... If you're looking at rhino, for example, uh, rhino is one of our main species that we talk about because that's a protection and species, an umbrella protection species. So you can protect an entire reserve or zone or habitat based off of the threats and pressur- pressures of elephant and rhino poaching. If you have rangers trained to the threat and risk level involved with that, and they protect everything from cycads to reptiles to birds to the megafauna. But if you're tackling it as an anti-poaching ranger and you're only looking at bushmeat, you will never stop the organized criminals or you'll never address the layers in the community. So the the approach is anti-poaching and wildlife trafficking investigations, direct conservation, which is your vets, your researchers, uh, relocations, rehabilitation, education and awareness, which is not just, you know, the like literal just sharing of posts, it's literally getting out into the communities, colleges, professional workforces, and making sure people have the right information and are currently engaged in what's going on. A- anti-poaching and wildlife trafficking, I have separate, <laughs> sorry, because they're two different right, right, worlds. Right. Right, um, so if I were to break apart anti-poaching and wildlife trafficking, um, anti-poaching in itself is gearing up rangers, training rangers, hiring rangers, creating more ranger units, different types of units, responding to their zones expanding protection zones and then wildlife trafficking investigations is getting the intel on what's happening regionally nationally and internationally to the right trustworthy sources so that if and or when that intel is actionable those who have the regional jurisdiction can act upon it so mm-hmm. that in itself is another large wing of multi collaboration so each avenue is broken into a different form so is very active, uh, in the global scope of poaching and wildlife conservation in those tiers. And we have, uh, we fluctuate between 9 and 17 project countries depending on what our direct involvement is. So some of the countries that I don't credit ourselves as directly involved in, we are not there more than a couple of months a year, but we do fund the entire operation of a ranger unit or a tire segment of that or whatever it may be. Um, so right, right. we're kind of all over the map.
1: <laughs> yeah. But it, it, I mean, it's interesting to listen to you talk because, it, it, you know, running through my head is, you know, you're taking poaching head on and yes. wildlife tracking, tra- uh, wildlife tracking head on it's. And then it's just listening to you talk. It is so conservation is so complex. And that's what something we try to get across in the podcast. It's not, just the anti-poaching you know it it, or just the wildlife trafficking it's you know engaging the locals and all that stuff but this is just this is what everybody's worried about right i mean the poaching so i guess because i really want to ask you about this ranger training but you know i think right now where are we in africa with poaching so um that's a really good question we are kind
0: of we have highs and lows um if you look at the scope of what's going on things are overall steadily getting better. However, in some regions, it's getting a lot worse. Um, and that depends on per species that's uh, at risk and which country is flipped back and forth between different regulations and how, they, how their jurisdiction and law enforcement works. Overall, um, more people are engaged in conservation efforts and more people are donating to conservation efforts. However, with that, we are still at a very, very bad point in the large spectrum of wildlife habitat. Um, and that goes into overpopulation, people need resources, um, economies and how good they're doing, and whether that impact, impacts the demand from another country, for example, China, and the, mm-hmm. being a demand country. And if the poverty level in Mozambique is really bad and, you know, these things flux and the, the ebb and flow of it is always, always going. But overall, as an industry, things are getting better. Technology and collaboration and public awareness is helping that. Good,
1: good, good, good. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's so complex. And, you know, Angie, my partner was just in Kruger, uh, in November or I think October for a conference and, you know, talking to the Rangers there. So, you know, we, we definitely have focused on Africa the last couple of months again. and and it, it's still there. Poaching is still a scourge and rhinos are being killed, you know, every day. Big so, yep. yeah. So, okay, real quick. So let's talk about anti-poaching rangers. And I know that's, you said you do a lot of training. I know you provide, a t- you know, resources, what you can. As can, can we kind of talk about the training process of becoming an anti-poaching ranger?
0: Sure. So um not all units are the same. So just to put that out there right now. Um Some of the best trained rangers in the industry are in Southern Africa and Eastern Africa um, and Central Africa. So there's a lot of variation in that. Overall, most ranger units to be very effective need to um, be very savvy in the bush. So that means they've got to be able to live out there for a while, deal with the wildlife, understand the wildlife deal with very hard conditions and um, be able to be alert and responsive to what's going on. So that comes with being a tracker. So you get the guys ready for the bush. Um, you train them as a tracker or you refine them as a tracker. Then you lay in layers of um, basically more organized patrols. Um, and that comes with being efficient. So you're not, you're not just walking aimlessly in the bush and then, because of the crisis and how it is, rangers are, for the most part, armed down. And it is not the goal of the rangers to shoot coaches. That's like the first thing I like to say with this. Most rangers did not become rangers to kill people. They came, right. became rangers to save wildlife. And, um, socially, there's a lot of pressure on the front line without the money to back up, uh, the rangers themselves. And rangers are losing friends, family, their own lives, and dealing with very tough conditions, and let's say a ranger has shot a poacher, that might haunt him for the rest of his life, because that's never what he wanted to do. Um, so we, even in that, deal with de-escalation training, and uh, appropriate force, and all these different types of avenues. Now, if you go through a one of the top layer of ranger training, it is very, very military in its mm-hmm. avenues. You're going to be in an intake between four and six, eight weeks. You're going to, um, your head's going to get shaved. You're going to go through the whole thing just like you would in a military boot camp. You're going to be yelled at and you're going to be going down all the avenues and you're going to be a specialist, a regional specialist for your type of habitat and type of crisis. Um, Building up on that, those same rangers that are in the harder zones to deal with things and are more effective are also trained in vehicle operations and technology that's paired with the field and crime scene investigation and community relations. Because a lot of times these rangers are the only thing between communities and wildlife and the police are either not there or not involved. So a ranger has a lot of facets to cover for a successful operation.
1: Right. Right. So, Oh, it's just, you know, you see the stories and, and so you're on the field, you're there, you're, you're, you're going back and forth to Africa. How, how often do you go back to Africa?
0: Um, so right now I'm out for several months of the year. Um, when I started, I was out for most of the year. Um, it really depends. Cause I, I'm also in Asia quite a bit. So for me personally, I prioritize my time based on what ranger training projects we're working on, what investigations we're working on, what project collaborations and project launches we're doing. Um, so it's highly variable. The next trip I'm going to be out for just a couple weeks because I've got to come back stateside for, um, some events and more gear alignment. So it's, it's highly variable.
1: So going to Africa that much, you know, you, you've kind of got the the pulse and and I know there, there's a lot of falsehoods out there, myths, so maybe we can bust some of those. I I guess from your, yeah, from (laughs) your perspective, you know, each individual country, are they very supportive? Of anti poaching, or are they trying to save their wildlife? What's going on there?
0: So, that is a perfect start. So, think of mm-hmm. each country like we would in the States, right? Each one's lesser, more or less involved in something specific. Um, some countries are doing fantastic with their wildlife conservation efforts. National parks are well funded, their collaboration is really good. Um, their infrastructure might be hurting because of the economy scale what they're dealing with. Um, but some countries are dealing with more corruption than others. And that's where even the most efficient NGOs and rangers hit walls. And what I have seen across the board is there is no lack in passionate conservationists and passionate rangers trying to do their best. But there is a political will and a political corruption scale that fluctuates sometimes annually based on which party is in charge of which country. Um, so Botswana is a big, a big one to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw a complete transformation in the last couple of years with the change of presidency. Um, that being said, there's still a lot of really active, very passionate conservationists. They're just a little mm-hmm. more handcuffed on mm-hmm. how much they're involved. Um, River park, um, there's a lot of corruption there, uh, cause of the organized crime and how, how massive the network is. But there are a lot of, there's a lot of really good progress there as well. Some of the best rangers in the entire world. And I've worked in over a dozen po- uh, countries in anti-poaching. Some of the mm-hmm. best rangers I ever have worked with and continue to work with are in South, South Africa.
1: Right. 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 And, you know, to kind of talk about, I guess one of the first things I want to talk about is, is the habitat in Africa you know, how much wild is actually left there? I know South Africa is pretty much, there is no wild, right? They're just all managed game parks. Correct. Is that true across most of Africa that you've seen? Um, I would say
0: there is a lot of habitat loss in general. Um, Southern Africa tends to be like more, I guess, compartmentalized, like with how they've done the the reserves. So like for those who haven't been to Africa, the best way to describe it is, If you're going to South Africa, you land in Johannesburg. That's like landing in LAX. And then you're going to go to Kruger. That's like Yosemite. You're going to drive through hours of just normal, you know, quotations, normal, um, Mm -hmm. country land and communities until you hit the Kruger park gates. And then you hit the buffer zone and the Kruger park. Um, you go up into Zambia, that gets really rural. You go into Botswana, that gets really rural. Um, Kenya, very rural. Uh, You know, there's a lot of these spots that are just like still wild, but they may be missing some of the wildlife.
1: Right, 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 right. And so you talked about organized crime networks. So they're the the kind of the the leaders of this, right? So who's actually doing the poaching? I mean, because we always think of it as like, say, some locals that are, you know, starved for money. They go out, hey, I can kill this rhino and get 10 grand for a horn, you know. Is it them or is it like an actual criminal network where like, say, people are flying in from Asia to poach, you know? Um, It's a little bit of everything. So Mm -hmm.
0: um, this is a perfect, there's no um, black and white zone that covers it all. But for the most part, most most poachers are uh, at an economic disadvantage. So they become the front runners for an organized gang that may be working in weapons, human, wildlife trafficking, and drug trafficking. Um So South Africa's organized crime network is very, very established because of some of the other gang stuff going down. But some of the first um, poaching pawns in the game of chess that was coming across were very poor Mozambicans coming across yeah. into the Kruger Park. Now, what some of them were not like that either, though. So you're dealing with groups of three to five, five being less average. And you might have a local guy who knows how to track and he's the dude who's very poor. And then you'll have the dude who's got the weapon and or the ax and, um, the, or you may have a couple of weapons in that mix. Those guys might be very organized. or are sorry, very routine organized criminals with a lot of background. They might've fought in the Bush war or they might've been part of the resistance in some type of form. So you, you can't always say that it's going to be the poor guy and you can't mm-hmm. always say it's going to be the criminal. Um, Perfect example is in the beginning, there were a couple of poachers coming over from Asia, doing fake trophy hunts and exporting them. But ninety nine point nine percent of the poachers coming across were the Mozambicans. But at the same time, there were a lot of dudes who were still savvy from the bush war coming across. Um, right. So you weren't just hitting Joe Smo with a hunting rifle and a, you know, a backup assault rifle or a backup pistol. You were hitting like a very savvy duo or trio of guys who were ready to take you down before the rhino. And right. that is not so much the case in some of the other years. So, like when we t- break it, poaching into tiers, so bushmeat poaching,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that is primarily your starving individual um, who's trying to meet the end of the week with some food for his family. Those are the guys that a lot of times are like the biggest win when you can convert them over into a ranger team. They have the heart for wildlife, they just need more support and income. Um, As soon as those guys that are doing bushmeat poaching are doing it on a large scale and for profit, they become more violent and more willing to be violent. Um Mm -hmm. when you're dealing with um big megafauna poaching, it varies from very organized crime into militias like the DRC and some of the other parts of you know the kind Mm -hmm. of the center mass of the continent. Mm -hmm. But then when you're dealing with the grayer in between, there's like kind of a wide variety of like different poaching stats in there you get you get a, a blend of these guys
1: right and for the the drc that, that's in the congo right so you're looking at like forest elephants pangolins yes uh, the, yeah okay okay yeah and then
0: like even in kenya bushmeat poachers are going to be local um ivory poachers are probably going to be international probably mm-hmm. but the internal network moving them like moving those guys around and moving the weapons and the horns or the tusks around whether it's rhino or ivory um they will be organized criminals in the in their own sense for their own region so.
1: right right and so in the bushmeat so let's just say the the poor guy are they're not really going out killing rhinos right they're like going out and getting you know an eland or some hook you know an antelope to feed themselves right that's what they're kind of going for or, or i guess primates kind of the smaller species or are they actually killing rhinos too you,
0: there was a little bit of bushmeat poaching with some rhino stuff really early on in this recent crisis, you know, scoping back to 2007. Um, mm-hmm. However, yeah, that, most of the cases for bushmeat guys, they're going for the more abundant species. Um, so warthogs, impala, mm-hmm. elan, kudu, um, that kind of stuff. And then, yes, oh, right. where the, you get further up into the continent, there's a lot of primate bushmeat poaching. Um, and even pangolins bushmeat poaching stuff there for the continent of Africa not not even for export um, and then again yeah those guys are not trying to go kill rhinos and elephants right they're right. they're just not that's not their goal most of the time
1: right right but i mean it, it's still i mean you have these species that are struggling to survive and and you're getting pressures not just from organized criminals but the the poor starving person in Africa so it's they're getting hit from multiple angles it's, yeah there's, you
0: know, it's a, there's like, a lot of variables.
1: Mhm, very complex, very complex. So from from your experience, how are these rhinos being poached? I guess you said, so you did say they're coming over from Mozambique. So to orient people, Kruger is right up against the border of Mozambique, right in South Africa. It's how many yeah. acres or is it again like 700 square miles or something? It's huge.
0: It's huge. Yeah, Kruger National Park's the size of Israel. So right. that's a good it's, reference point.
1: <laughs> it's enormous. It's enormous. And so they're, they're, they're coming over. Are they mainly just shooting rhinos and elephants? Or what are some of the ways that they're poaching these animals?
0: So no poaching incident at this point in the game is happening by accident. Um, so in the beginning, there was a lot of what we called bump contacts where poachers would just like walk in from Mozambique aimlessly. And if they got into it, if they found a rhino, they shoot the first rhino they saw and they'd leave. Um, everything again is organized crime. So the guys who are coming in are hitting very fast and they're leaving very fast and they're moving very fast. So, um, they may be Mozambican. Um, they may be from Johannesburg area. I'm not saying they're originally, but they start with local intel. So they start with corrupting an internal member on a reserve. So if a reserve has a lodge or lodges, it's at more risk to be hit by poachers if they have some of the big game in it. Um so they'll corrupt a cook, a gate guard, um a game driver, a ranger, whoever they can and they'll get information about where the rangers are at, where the rhinos are usually at. Um and they'll have an in and out source. They'll get a weapon stashed in a reserve or they'll get waved through when they're coming into the reserve without a search and when they leave and there's a lot that game plan is in place. So when they strike, most of the time it's at night uh i would say at this point it's over over 95% at night you never bump into these guys during the day on mm-hmm. foot unless they've made a mistake um or something else has changed up their game plan last minute um mm-hmm. so they strike at night they love the time frame around the full moon we call that the poachers moon because they shoot the rhinos at the edge of the moon's cresting you know full moon circuit at night mm-hmm. um so that's usually in anywhere between like 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. And their goal is to get that rhino, get the horn, and get out of the reserve before the ranger units can, uh, very effectively chase them down. And unfortunately, a lot of these guys, you can tell how good they are based on how, uh, messed up the rhino is. Um, a very, very skilled group. It's gonna take them less than three minutes to dehorn that rhino after they've shot it. Um, and they're gonna, I mean, they're gonna be on the Rhino, and gone in three minutes. Um, and it's going to look very surgically removed from the base. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are still guys out there who have less skilled grunt guys with the axe, and it does get pretty bad, and it gets very gory. That still doesn't take them that much time. We'll say maybe 10 minutes-ish. Um, but they're, they're in and out. And once they hit the roads, this is something that I saw and I watched personally, we originally were catching guys on the roads by stopping, you know, all sorts of random vehicles and doing vehicle inspections and stop points. But then they got very smart. like you would expect them to It was, it's was an arms race of sorts. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the guy who's the pickup dude in the getaway car has a freaking Audi or a, a Mercedes or some souped-up um, vehicle, and we're driving in Toyota Land Cruisers. So our response to them, we can't catch them right. unless we – Unless we have checkpoints and are willing to intercept them, because most of the times they're willing to try to either, you know, drive right through or whatever it's going to mm. be. Um, so yeah, now it's, it's, it's very sophisticated. Um, but what we talk about in anti-poaching again is that doesn't deter us from anything that we're doing or slow us down. We need to train rangers in the sense of knowing that this is going to happen. So you prevent, you prepare for the very worst based on all the situations and the history of data points that you have. And you create response and reaction plans based on anything that can happen in those zones. So when a poacher comes in and we know they're good, you know, we're working Intel before that. So we're working in the communities trying to get information about who's coming in. And let's say we get a tip off and we know what car it is, we're going to do things proactively to make these guys make mistakes. If we can, for example, place a canine at the entrance gate where they have a corrupt player. And they hit the they hit that gate and they see a canine and the canine operator is not the gate guard, then they're going to panic and they're going to come back a different time, which means they just made a mistake, which means they have to go off their plan, which means they're more likely to get caught on the road at a checkpoint, more likely to get caught when they breach the reserve, and they're more likely to get caught with an illegal weapon. The other way to do it is if these guys are coming in and going and um, you know just all sorts of random placements of vehicles. Running your rangers past, uh, construction sites and or the lodges and it's called a presence patrol. You, you shake them up by just letting them know, hey, there's a lot of dudes in here that look pretty mean. If we were to go toe to toe with them and they might get cold feet for a night. Um so it, it is super complicated. Um, but there are a lot of game tactics, sorry, a lot of gang, game tactics at play for these kind of things that they do.
1: Right. And you're, you know, and then the other end of the supply chain, the, the wildlife trafficking part, is there any success going on in Asia to try to reduce demand? I mean, from what we're reading, it, it it's falling on deaf ears in Asia. People are still wanting rhino horn, you know, for medicinal stuff that does absolutely nothing. But it just seems like it's we're not being very successful in trying to drive demand down. Is that true?
0: I would say... Personally, I do think we are making progress, um, and the way that I can judge that is, is there are youth and community leaders now in those countries that have taken the torch and become ambassadors for the cause, where we yes, didn't really yes. have that before. And yeah. um, some key players really did help help with that. Um, you know, key celebrities getting involved in ads and campaigns. And um, so GCF has a demand reduction program in Hanoi, Vietnam, which is one of the heart and soul cities of all wildlife demand. Um, and we partnered with the veterinary college in Hanoi, Vietnam. And there's the students club there of students. Or, well, some of them are scientists already and some of them are going to be. And um, we created our three month long education course on demand reduction or wildlife education with them. And they're the community leaders working in, a lot of the schools where the families would be able to afford certain wildlife products. So we're not just going to random communities and providing wildlife education. We're going to the sons and daughters of the business owners and the company owners who are the ones buying the products and moving the market. And if, you know, maybe we can't change grandma and grandpa. Maybe we might be able to change mom and dad, but if the kids get the message and they're willing to work it, now we're seeing that there are hundreds of students in these main cities and hundreds of people that are are on the path of change for the better. And um, they become local champions. We can't, from the outside, expect to throw messaging at a country and say, you know, you're wrong. It's, I, I always describe it like if you were to come into the United States and tell someone, like, oh, you're stupid because you're eating in and out. And what if that's the mm-hmm. same thing? You know, like, right, right, right. it did the message isn't, isn't received. Even if it's true, so we we are working on building and creating and expanding um, conservation leaders in the countries of crisis, and we're seeing really positive results with that. It's a slow process, but yeah. it's it's going.
1: Oh, I, that is oh yes 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 okay. It, it was I think it was in the Rhino episode where we t- I talked about that with Angie, and I just said if we're going to make a difference, it has to be the youth. Yes. Through social media, through education. They are the ones that will change it. Yeah. That is, that's amazing, Mike. That is, I didn't know you guys were doing that. That is awesome. That is so awesome. Thanks, I'm, I'm going to be screaming. I'm going to be screaming at, at, like every episode. <laughs> what doing? This is so crazy. So I guess what, are, what are some of the other things you guys are doing? You know, I, I mean, I, I know you're, I just want you to, you to tell the story. I know some of the stuff you're doing. I just, again, I can't scream loud enough how awesome it is, but if you can <laughs> tell our listeners some of the things that you're doing to help these anti-poaching units. Sure. So
0: we bring in, um, our, either our ranger units who are trained from multiple areas of crisis zones, and we have them train other ranger units. Um, we right. expand staff in ranger units by hiring in more guys. Um, training them to a high end level. We have reoccurring trainings for rangers like advanced combat medicine and advanced tracking, um, vehicle responses, canine units, mounted units. We've created our own canine and mounted units operations in several locations. Um, we just brought in a ton, a, several Belgian Malinois into southern Africa and this is the first time, um, some really high Working line dogs have got in because same thing with that. A lot of times in conservation, there's not enough money. And so, you know, let's say someone's good intention, but they they don't realize, you know, a reserve can barely function on a couple hundred thousand dollars annually if it's a big one. And they come in like, oh, you guys need a dog. And then no one's trained. They don't know how to work with the dog. They don't, mm-hmm. they can't afford the dog. So um, one of the projects we have going is we're not only getting a lot of rangers certified in canine handling. We have a mentorship program and we have canines in country that we are training and placing soon. Um, and then of course mounted units bringing back old tactics back to the battleground zero. Um, we've got, uh, we've got some research drones over some, some areas. Um, we've got a lot of technology integration to these areas that can't afford it. We've got the demand reduction projects, wildlife trafficking collaborations, education in general. So like, like community-based education in Africa. Like some of these kids um, in the rural communities have never been into the reserve that they're just outside of. So we bring them in on field trips and we have uh, animal-based English language learning courses for them. So these kids might be six to 16. They've never been in a reserve. They've never seen a rhino in real, per- in, in real life. And they go through like an educational fun course with GCF crew or GCF partnership and the crew. And we take them into the, you know, Cougar National Park or one of the local reserves and creating youth leaders there as well in the area. They may not be rangers, but they may be working at a lodge or as a game driver or anywhere else, but they have an understanding of conservation and appreciation for what's special to their homeland or home range. Um, we do a lot of, um, a lot of professional training too for folks, uh, not just in ranger stuff. So, um, one of the other uh, coordinators on the team. He's also a very long time, or sorry, very seasoned senior, uh, senior keeper. And so we were working with some of the rhino orphanages and um, classical conditioning, opera conditioning training for the rhino orphans, so that when they get in, several orphans they can use positive reinforcement-based training methods to, I guess, synchronize their day and make it more efficient and make of you know language. Um, with the animals that are in their care, and they can also use that for the reintroduction process so that the animals aren't human dependent by the time they need to wean them to the end to the field. So, uh, with that, you know, we work with a select few rhino orphanages, um, and that's security and professional training and, you know, a wide variety of things. Uh, and then we do relocation stuff. We've relocated several, several different species with several of our project partners where they might have had the people on the ground, but they couldn't get the funding. And then we just, we work on the funding with them and we put in some team members for cross training and boom, we're moving Africa painted dogs, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Some really cool projects um, in this giant scope of things. Um, honestly, every week is pretty crazy just to kind of look through what's going on. We We just started in Australia as a response. Mm-hmm. Um, that was another thing that's new. Um, one of our, one of our core team members, um, we didn't launch it in the beginning because he was actually trying to save his house and property throughout yeah, most sure. of the fires. Mm-hmm. And so once that settled down, um, we created a hundred acre reserve zone, uh, with his property background and several other properties around him because the national forest burnt all the way up to his property line. Um, mm-hmm. where, and, and so, Now you have thousands of acres of wildlife habitat loss and injured wildlife looking for food and water and shelter. And they're flooding these zones. So we've got feed and water stations out. He's trained with, uh, training with wires to be a local rehab wildlife specialist. And then the GCF hundred acre plot, which is, I guess, uh, it's helping out with all the wildlife in the region there that's lost the habitat. Um, we'll be having a soft, and hard reintroduction location on that property for animals coming out of wires that are cleared to be released back to the field. And then down the line, we're going to be working on rehabilitation for the burn zones. So
1: a lot of things going on. Yeah. <laughs> How do you keep it straight? <laughs> like, I'm just my head swimming and all the stuff you have, you're, you've got going. That's amazing. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. We've got a lot of yeah. cool
0: team members, honestly um, started building the team a long time ago a lot of a lot of passionate people and creating, you know, ha- channels of communication and channels of execution for projects and checkpoints and verification stuff. And we have quite a few folks working on quite a few things at the end of the day. Right.
1: right. I, I, and I know I've met a few of them. So, like, are they just uh, – are a lot of them zookeepers that you've met or are they just conservationists or just regular people from any, every walk of life?
0: It's honestly – people from every walk of life. Um, we have Navy SEALs on the team and we have, you know, some federal special agents who work on the team for different things, all the way to zookeepers, all the way to graphic designers. <laughs> I mean, it's all over the place. Yeah. Brewers. Yeah. Uh, I mean,
1: all sorts of stuff. Uh, you're going to have two scientists, me and Angie soon. I, know it. <laughs> we're, I love it. We're going to come. We were going to Africa to help you. It's just, Uh, so some of the stuff, so going back to the dogs, because I, I follow your Instagram and those dogs, you you mentioned they're at checkpoints. Do they also go out in the field? Are they trained to, to like sniff out either poaching camps or carry on stuff like that? Yeah.
0: So dogs are, um, so when we talk anti-poaching, we talk about each Avenue being a tool on toolbox So there's no silver bullet. To end the crisis there 's not one thing that works every time all the time, um, so you 've got to create a toolbox. Canines are currently the most effective individual tool in that toolbox against poaching proactively and in a response based situation. Um, our canines are trained as dual purpose, meaning they do bite and retrieval of suspects, and they also do detection work so um, the dogs can be at a checkpoint, and this is like you know this is best bang for the buck, right? The dog doesn't have to move a lot of places. You get several vehicles coming in every 15 minutes. The dog does a once around the car. He's sniffing for rhino horn, pangolin scales, ivory, bushmeat, uh weapons, and you know ammunition. And if we catch these guys coming in, we've prevented a poaching incident. If we catch them coming out, we've got these guys and we can lock them down on something else. Um, we can also use these canines on active patrol and we use them for searching out live suspects, cold trails, weapons that are stashed and or from a crime scene uh, if we're in a, a response or pursuit we track down the poachers themselves. Um, since coming back to the previous conversation about timing for run poaching since a lot of poaching incidents happen at night your canine is one of your most valuable assets since many Ranger units do not have night vision or cannot afford it. If you can be on patrol with your canine and you can be tracking very quickly at night, then as your canine's looking down, you're looking up. And if you do catch up to these poachers, you can apprehend them alive by releasing your canine. Um, and so there's a lot of, a lot of major bonus points with the dogs. Um, there are several kinds of dogs in the field. Um, bloodhounds are really good for your long distance and or um, older scent tracking trails. Hounds, the, the group hounds that we're using in part of Kruger National Park are really good for like instant response stuff. Um, because you have to keep in mind like the dogs have to be trained in the conditions. They have to be um, treated very carefully because it's very hot. So you can't just like drop a canine unit down and have them run for 15 minutes if it's 120 degrees outside. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of tactics that we train units with with canines as well. So like our Malinois, our Belgian Malinois, uh, they, we do leapfrogging. So like, pick up the track, put the trackers down again, leapfrog the track, put the canine on it, leapfrog the track again, put a different canine on it. You know, there's different canine tracking methods for interception and capture. Um, but they're, they're amazing. And for a lot of the rangers, it's a way to level up as a ranger and it's a morale booster and they absolutely love their canines and they, they just love everything about it. It gives them more to do in a day, um, so the cans are honestly one of my absolute favorite things.
1: Right, and and then you switch. Yeah, I know it's they're amazing to watch, and you know I'll definitely provide some of the links that people can follow on social media. You know uh, the stuff that you're doing because it's it's just it's heartening to see you know as much resources as you're pouring in there. Um, the horse patrols are interesting too. I thought you know, I was talking to Roxanne and, and the support she's doing with your organization with the horse stuff. So I don't know. Can you kind of talk about what they do? Yeah. So the horses are also super cool. Um, so horses used to be used in
0: anti-poaching years ago. So that kind of fell out of pace. And there's this odd thing where like a lot of people stopped riding in reserves and stopped using it for patrol because things modernized and the crisis went away and it wasn't as necessary. well, several years back um while working on different patrols i was like you know what we should get some horses out on these reserves so i was talking to the different you know reserves we wanted to do this at to trial it and so Rox has a long long history as a professional equestrian we brought her out she trained not only the horses from s- square one she yeah, trained yeah. the rangers as riders and so there's a lot involved with that and um Same thing, just like the canines. It gave these guys another avenue of success. It gave them another avenue of growth. Um, It gave them something to look forward to, a new challenge, and success rates. Um, Some areas obviously are not getting hit as hard, but in one of the reserves that we have the mounted unit on, the reserves around them have been hit, but they do not dare step into the the GCF reserve. Um, Mm -hmm. And we're talking like across the street getting hit. Um, Right. And that's because they know they've got a canine unit and a mountain unit. So they're going to be pretty sore if they get into a, you know, a bump up fight with those dudes. Um, right. And then in other areas, uh, one of the other mounted units that we've trained and created with another uh, unit in KZN, those guys are dealing with poaching. If, like every couple hours and they're just capturing poachers left, right and center. And so the same thing's happening there. The, it's getting back to all the networks like don't go in that area the amount of you know, dudes getting captured and uh, arrested and prosecuted is really high you don't stand a chance um, there's some key benefits to horses and that is distance silence and visual so you can track really easy from the height of the horse at the, like what you're looking at the dirt and the horse has a very in tune sense with what's around it so things even out here the horses here So maybe it's a leopard or a lion or it's an elephant or a black rhino you would have walked into, or it's the poacher's hiding. Um, All of these things come into play. And if you're really in tune with your horse, you're going to be much more in tune with the parameters of protection and conservation that you're trying to achieve uh, in that specific
1: zone. Right, right. I, I mean, just crossing my head when you said that. Are they ever worried about a lion like going after them? I mean, I guess you're trained. Yes. I'm on horseback and there's lions around. So that's a
0: big, big thing for the Mounted Units. Horses are prey items to these big cats. And so a lot of zones where they try to make sure that the horses work more regularly are not dangerous. Big game or sorry, big five zones with lion. Um, Mm -hmm. So, so, fast details to cover AM and PM would be fence line patrols where that might be a, a quad bike running all the time or whatever it is you get a horse line you get a horse on the fence line it's a presence patrol and it's a detection patrol um right. but then if you can get these guys acclimated a lot of the a lot of the big cats are tagged in all of these reserves so you mm-hmm. know where they're at so you just rotate your patrols opposite of where the lion prides at right right <laughs> And you're always calling into the field biologist or ecologist who's monitoring that location. You're like, hey, can you give me a, a radio caller location in an hour for where these cats are? And they're like, yep, they haven't moved. They're in the same spot. So Perfect. we yeah. do that too because it is, it's is—it's a very serious thing. But also yeah. um elephants in Buffalo a very big mm-hmm. thing. Um, yeah, they and chase you. Yeah, not want
1: chase. I yeah. um, <laughs> don't <and laughs> no. by my an elephant. Oh.
0: And one of the things that I learned too just when I – because I've worked on mountain patrol stuff too, mm-hmm. is ardvark holes and porcupine ardvark mm-hmm. porcupine and warthog holes and dens. First of all, if you go in front of a warthog den and the, the warthog blows out of that den, your horse spooks and you go flying, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But also mm-hmm. these these are like almost like two foot in diameter sometimes, and or sorry, in circumference around the, the the hole there, and that your horse could step into it and you could go right. down,
1: right. So there's some challenges. Yeah, I bet, I bet, I bet, I bet. So we talked about rhinos and the ivory trade. A little bit about pangolins. What are some of the other species that you see are being poached or are in trouble down there? So if
0: there's a market for it, it's happening. Um, So in Africa, we're not seeing a lot of reptile poaching, at least in the main continent, um, for the most part. But we are seeing... Lesser game species, uh, for bush meat, um, birds for muti or, um, the, the shamanistic magic or medicine trade. Mm-hmm. And even that ties into rhino poaching. So, um, poachers are extremely superstitious. Um, they all have their sangoma or their local medicine man. And that guy's going out and poisoning watering holes so he can have vulture skulls and brains and hyena teeth. And, then he's using those to sell back to the rhino poachers. And it's the mm-hmm. cycle of things that's happening from the Chinese demand markets. But um, giraffe we see poaching with. Um, uh, there's a an influx in line parts that are being sold as tiger parts. Uh, there's kind of, unfortunately, a lot of stuff all over the place. It just regionally right. depends on where you're at. Snare poaching is a daily grind for rangers. Um, mm-hmm. There's always snares to be removed. Um, that's a very active thing and snares are indiscriminate killers. So it may have been set for a kudu and the, there may have been 15 snares there and one snare got a kudu and then he, the putcher left the rest of them. And then a painted dog goes through it, you know, yeah. two months later, three months later, a year later. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of anti-putching work to be done on the regular. So
1: here's one. I It's a tough question. And, you know, You've been there in Africa, and I know you've posted some images, but what do you feel when you come upon a dead rhino? Like, what goes through your head when that happens? It still really kills me.
0: Um, mm-hmm. I've been on uh, probably just myself and the units I've worked with now, processing crime scenes, I've done over 45. And... The pain never goes away from seeing that. Um, Especially since I've worked so closely with rhinos in the U S and on foot there. I mean, you know how smart they are, Mm -hmm. you know how traumatic the experience was. And unfortunately knowing how to read the crime scene, you know how
1: it all went down
0: to me. It it drives me crazy. Um, Yeah. Every single time.
1: Yeah. It gives you the drive to keep, keep doing what you're doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. I mean, I, i that's I've never lost that that's for sure i sometimes you do definitely just want to throw in the hat because you're so just tired of the death and destruction of everything that's going on around you um but those rhino crime scenes, man, do they get you angry i mean and if they don't something's
1: wrong' cause, yeah <laughs> and yeah, i I look at the images and they're just it's just i want to, I wanna cry i mean it's just it's horrific. yeah
0: it's oh we have i mean I've been on crime scenes where I'm, again, going back to this mean, lean, special operations team, and all of us are just weeping in front of the carcass. are just yeah. crying because it's terrible.
1: Yeah, beautiful animals. Oh. Well, we're going to keep fighting, and we're going to keep spreading the word. Just to, Mike, I know you're so busy. Just a couple more questions. That kind of leads me into this one that I ask of all my guests, and, and it's just from your perspective, you know, You're out there in the field. You're you're fighting to save these species. As human beings, do we have a moral obligation to fight and preserve all these endangered species? If you ask me, I
0: say absolutely. Um, You know, there's the convenience factor of being removed from how real it is. Uh, But every species is so tied together. And if we can't save rhinos or elephants, for that matter, we can't save ourselves because we're too apathetic as, as a whole. And things, things need to change in general. I mean, luckily there are people that care about conservation. And I feel like it's, it's a growing thing. But at the same time, you know, I've had people come up to me and say, well, you know, why should I care? Or, you know, I don't even care about that stuff. It's in another country. And I mean, people should really think twice about saying that to me because I will punch you. So, uh,
1: <laughs> so
0: I, I mean, like, granted, i I'm going to, try to be uh, cordial at first, but I've had people, like, assaultively come at me with that before. And, and mm-hmm. you realize, like, it's a little bit of a, a reality check. Some people do not care. And um, that level of selfishness is, is not healthy for society.
1: No, and, I, you know, you, there are those people out there, you're right. But I think the majority, like, it breaks their heart. And they feel helpless a little bit on how to help. So that my last question <laughs> kind of leads into my last question. How can, how can we support you? How do we support Global Conservation Force? What can our listeners do?
0: There are so many ways to be involved. And this is a question I get all the time. Um, but I say start locally. Throw, throw your birthday fundraiser on Facebook for Global Conservation Force and tell us what you want it to go to. Uh, host a backyard fundraiser. Host a fundraiser at your local restaurant. Take your local nonprofit chapter and raise funds for us. Join us for the education spread stuff. Help us create content, um, educational materials, graphics. Um, if you can donate yourself, that helps tremendously. Um, grab the merchandise at the times that we're, you know, looking to push a certain avenue and wear it and help be a, a, a talking head for the cause and, and whatever else is, empowering you to be involved um you know it don't one person can do a lot of change and i don't think a lot of people take that into effect or, or i don't think a lot of people take that into account but if every person just did one thing we would be doing a lot more right now mm-hmm. and well
1: I, baby steps i was yeah i sorry i didn't mean to cut you off i was just gonna say look you know and i know you don't want to toot your own horn but look what you've done like you've started this organization, you've led this effort and now you're making a difference. So one person, you know, you're making a huge difference.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it is really crazy to look back and see how far it's gone now. Um But I mean, I don't even look at it being like finished or close to finished or anything like that. I I just, now I'm like, how, how, how can we do more? And the way I see that is always, how can I get more people involved?
1: Right. Right, right, right. And we'll definitely put the links up, you know, your website.
0: Yeah, the website
1: and the,
0: I'd say make, take, take, take a look at makingarangerfilm.org. Um, that shows you an inside look to how rangers are trained and why they have to be trained that way. Um, it's a short documentary. It's, I think, 13 or 14 minutes. Um, but it, it does a really good job at kind of like sealing in the life of a ranger
1: no perfect we will I'll definitely provide those links uh, on our show notes and people can go there and and see what you're doing I I mean Mike thank you for the time I we're definitely going to follow up with some of the other members that I've spoken to and hear quickly in the next couple months and and tell more of the story I when I first heard about what you were doing I was blown away I I just I followed you guys and what you're doing and we're going to keep telling your story and hopefully you know we're big cheerleaders of what you're doing Um, but thank you so much. Thank you so much for what you do. And then thank you for spending the hour with us.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, and honestly, it's, it's a pleasure for me. Thank you guys for supporting us. And thank you for giving me a platform to be able to reach others so that we can get more help to the field.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So thanks. And, uh, we'll, we'll talk again soon.